Well, good morning. You may have to give me a minute after that last song. Amen. Amen. What a powerful name, and uh, it ties perfectly into the sermon this morning. Uh, You may have to give me another minute because uh, right after the first service, one of the ladies that's in our uh, young adult life group, uh, Riley Little, came up to me and she said, I need to place my faith and trust in Christ. And so, sorry I didn't get to say hello to a lot of you guys, but uh, I just had the opportunity to lead a young lady that I've known for six months, nine months now. Uh, to Christ, and uh, just a wonderful, wonderful thing, and so, uh, man, just when you think about, (laughs) when you think about the power of that name, it is powerful, and so much power goes with that. And so uh, this morning, we're going to speak on Jesus. <laughs> we are in uh, our, our Trinity sermon series on God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And uh, last week, we looked at God the Father. And the week before that, we looked at how all of this works together. Uh, but this morning, we're going to look at God the Son, this Jesus that we just sang three beautiful songs about. And so as we kind of tie that in this morning, uh, let me ask you just a, a genuine, honest question this morning. Have you ever wondered why we have children? Now, listen, like I've got two teenagers, so like I I get this aspect of it. But for generations, we've wondered, man, why do we have children? Why is it this? And I'll never forget, my wife and I were uh, at a restaurant here in Pooler. This was when we had just come out here to the church. Uh, We had Caroline and Carly. Carly was still in a uh, a carrier, and uh, we had had a family dinner at this Japanese, do you remember this, this Japanese restaurant? And... uh, the, the couple like started to talk to me as I'm carrying Carly out and they were like, oh, your family is so precious. And that's like after 10 bathroom trips with Caroline to the bathroom, Carly screaming her head off. And I was like, you have no idea how much work this is. And they were like, oh, we just found out we're pregnant. <laughs> and I was like, well, congratulations. <laughs> I took my family and left. Uh, but it's, it's crazy to sometimes think, why do we have children? What are some of the reasons that we have children? Why is it that we do this? If, if you're a parent, you understand that children cost a lot of money. Children cost a lot of time. They hit you on the worst time possible <laughs> for the most needy thing in the moment. And listen, I, I love my kids. I, I wouldn't trade my daughters for anything in the world, but it's tough. So here's some of the reasons as to why we have children. Number one is the desire for family. The fact that maybe you grew up in a really great home and a really great family and you want to provide that for other children and for your children and for your family. Uh, For some, it's family legacy, something that is powerful about the name that you can pass down from generation to generation. Uh, For me, I have two daughters, so we have actually agreed in our household that anybody that marries into our family will take the Hubbard last name. Amen? Good luck, guys. Uh, When you think about this, uh, to give and receive unconditional love. Can I tell you one of my favorite parts of being a parent? When I would come home from a horrible day at work, and one of my children would go, Daddy! And run and just jump into my arms. Does anybody, they don't do that as teenagers? 
Okay, uh, but that was absolutely one of the greatest joys that I would receive. And listen, my children, I will always love them regardless of what they do, how they act. They will always be my children. I love them. Listen, for you that have parents, you may have crazy, cuckoo, out-of-the-box parents, but they're still your parents and you still love them. Hey, you probably won't say amen until your 30s, but eventually you'll say amen to that too to fix mistakes of your parents. And maybe you wanted to have children to show them that this is what a family unit should look like. This is how we come together. Maybe it's social pressure. Man, everybody else is having kids. Why don't we have a few, right? Which, just so you know, is a really horrible reason to have children because that backfires in a lot. But when you think about this, uh, when you have children, sometimes the role of a son Now, listen, if you are a male in this room, having a relationship with your father is a difficult thing. This always comes with a complication. This always comes with kind of this father-son dynamic where you kind of continue to grow and you continue to learn each other. And so, listen, for me, uh, the understanding of having a relationship with my father, sometimes he's the toughest one for me to have a relationship with. And so here's kind of the desire or the role of a son. A son should make a father proud to the cusp of envy. A father should wish he had the life his son leads. And lastly, a son should assist and protect the family in the absence of his father. A father and son should exist independently and function independently at the same time. Listen, sons, you have a responsibility. And so if you're a son in this room, this is part of your duty, part of your responsibility. First off is to keep your room clean, okay? I don't know why that needs to be said to sons more than daughters, but that needs to be said to sons. Having good manners. Can I get a yes, sir? Like this is, man, have good manners. Treat other people with respect that's around you. Maintaining a good relationship with your siblings. Can I get an amen, parents? Like this is part of your responsibility as a son to maintain or a child is to maintain that relationship. Obey and honor your parents. Listen, Ephesians chapter six and verse one tells us that children are to obey their parents. Man, understand that this is your responsibility. And then being devoted to your family. Listen, one of the things that's passed down from generation to generation is that Hubbard name. And so it's kind of confusing sometimes for me because sometimes somebody will slip up and call me and say, hey, Pastor Hubbard. And like I look and go, where's my dad? I'm a second generation pastor. That's his name. I I guess I'm Pastor Jeff or Jeff or whatever name you choose to call me, I'm good with. Uh, But when you think about this, this is part of that role, part of that that comes together. There's a thing that's considered called a son preference. It's not talked about in American culture that much, but in countries like India, Egypt, and especially in China, having a son is the goal in having children, period. Women are looked at as lesser than and not as equals to. Listen, the reality is that this relationship is tough. The relationship of a father and a son can be very, very, very difficult. I remember this, this understanding of uh, being in my, my brother, my older brother, and I would learn from him and I would learn from the relationship that they had in some ways. But listen, a father and a son-in-law can be just as difficult of a relationship. So this morning, I want to key in on this relationship with God the Son, this understanding of who Jesus Christ is in the midst of the Trinity. 
One of the things that takes place in the Christian community is that because we can't fully grasp or fully understand how to explain the Trinity, we've stopped even trying to study it. We've stopped even kind of holding on to it. And we've stopped digging into the deeper things of God because it's just a mystery to us and it's hard for us to explain. But the reality is that the Trinity is explainable. It is something that we can know, something that we can grasp, something that we can share with other people. And I'll help you understand that when you begin to share your faith, one of the questions that's going to come up the most is, you have three gods. How do you explain that to us? And we can explain it as the Trinity. And I love the working definition that we have is this. God is one God and exists in three persons who are all God. This is what the Trinity is, that they are all three equally God. They all have different identities and function, and this is actually called for us the Godhead. So let me ask you a question to kind of consider as we look at this message this morning. I was listening to a message from years ago by Charles Stanley, and he asked this question in a perfect tense. If you know Charles Stanley and you know the approach that he had, uh, he, he was very inviting and he kind of brought everybody together. And I was, I was, as I was watching his message on this, he walked out on stage to thousands of people and he asked this question, who is this man called Jesus? It was as if a pin would drop in this auditorium because now the weight of explaining this became on, on us. And so if I were to ask you this question this morning and say, hey, explain to me who this Jesus is. Who is this man that you say Jesus And we just heard a beautiful song of the name of Jesus, of the things that he accomplishes, the things that he does. But how do you explain who this man Jesus is? A lot of times we revert to something that we've learned or something that we we, kind of half understand. But how you define or how you answer this question defines a lot about you. To some, he's a good teacher. If you look at the Muslim faith and traditional Jewish faith, he is considered a good teacher. He is somebody that taught really great. For some, he's this really intriguing figure in history that did miracles and people crucified. And you see this from a historical perspective. But who is he to you? There's a problem that comes into this when we typically define who Jesus is. The problem that we come to is that we want Jesus to relate to us. And so in essence, a lot of times when we explain Jesus, he's a better form of who we are. Man, this Jesus is a, 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 a guy that, Jesus, or that Jeff Hubbard strives to be but may never fully attain, but he's really only perfect in the areas that I want him to be perfect in. So when you think about how we explain this Jesus, the problem is that we've turned Jesus into our own perception and our own reality. That Jesus is this to me. Listen, we have many different Santa Clauses. We have many different Easter Bunny approaches. We have many different things. And we've lumped Jesus in that same term. Jesus is this to me. Jesus is this to me. Jesus takes care of me in this moment, does this. And listen, You can't define Jesus for who you are. 
So this problem comes in when we try to relate Jesus to us. The reality is that if Jesus is not the one that challenges us, that transforms our life completely, he's not Jesus, he's the created Jesus that you've created. So we get this understanding of who Jesus was in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16 and 17. And we looked at this in this first week, but we are looking at the baptism of Jesus Christ. Jesus goes to John the Baptist and he says, I need to be baptized. John the Baptist's response was, I am not worthy to loose the sandals of your shoes. How is it that you want me to baptize you? So we come to this place where Jesus is baptized. And in verse 16, he says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold. So imagine this picture beginning to take place that John the Baptist puts Jesus under the water and as he's bringing him up, something miraculous, something special begins to take place. He says, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. Imagine that when Jesus comes up from this baptism, the whole clouds and the whole heavens begin to open up before him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. Imagine John the Baptist going, I've baptized a lot of people. This is different. This dove ascends from heaven and the Holy Spirit and is identified as the Holy Spirit that comes and rests maybe on the shoulder of Jesus. Then what's even crazier is the definition that God reveals who this Jesus is. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said these words. This is my beloved son. This is why he's called the son of God, with whom I am well pleased. Now, can I tell you something that's kind of crazy? That I, 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 I've read this passage of scripture many, many times throughout the years. I've never questioned this. At this point, Jesus had not even really began his ministry He had not taught anybody. He had not done miracles for anybody. There's no real recorded event other than the fact that he was teaching in the temple and his parents lost him. Why would God say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased? Can I tell you the answer to that question? Is that knowing that he was God, that he left the heavens to come into flesh form for us. This is what pleased him. This is what honored him in submission was that. I love the fact that he defines it and he tells him, this is my beloved son. This is my son. This is the son of God. And this is whom I am well pleased. You may begin to ask and say, why does it matter? Why does it matter who this Jesus is? Can't he reveal himself? Can't he define himself? I'll tell you that they address this in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13 through 16. If you know the context, Jesus is with his disciples and he's having this conversation and he's beginning to ask them a few questions. They had seen that he had ministered for probably about a year and a half to two years at this point. They had seen him teach many things. They had seen him do healings. They had seen him do all kinds of incredible events. 
He says in verse 13, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples this question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Hey, define me. Now listen, this reality hit me a few years back. Uh, some, some people that we kind of knew loosely were moving into the house across the street from us. And she said, hey, you're a pastor, right? And I said, I am. She described her husband in a way that I probably can't reveal from the pulpit. And she said, hey, he's kind of a jerk, but he's a really nice guy. Now, the reality is, this provoked a few questions in Jeff Hubbard. Number one, how does my wife describe me to others? Man, I've never thought about that. Because in my mind, oh, he's a great guy. Maybe she doesn't. I asked her that question. She still has not answered. Number two, I thought, man, she probably knows him better than anybody. Maybe that's who he is. And then the third thing hit me. I kind of want to know who he is. I want to make my own assumption. I want to I see if he really is this guy. So later on, I get to know him. Uh, later on, he accepts Christ and begins to go to church with his wife. And so this great thing begins to happen. But here's Jesus asking the disciples, asking the people that are close to him, the people that are going to tell him the truth. Because if I ask some of you that don't really know me, you're probably going to tell me what I want to hear. Jesus was asking these individuals, hey, explain to me who people are saying that I am. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Man, this is a a pretty good list to be compared to. Elijah didn't die, he went and ascended into heaven. John the Baptist, he was known for being a little bit weird in the woods, but he was ultimately a guy that followed God. One of the prophets, if you look at the major prophets and the minor prophets, these were men that stood up strong and did exactly what God desired of them. But more importantly, Jesus asks and says, who do you say that I am? To which Simon Peter, typically the first to respond, and it got him in a lot of trouble a lot of times. But on this occasion, he got it right. He looked and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. If you look in the verses to follow after this, Jesus affirms him and says, you got it. You understand it. I am the Christ. I am the son of the living God. It has been revealed to you by the heavenly father that I am him. And upon this church, upon this belief, I will build my church. The results of this question being answered the right way by Simon Peter was that after Jesus Christ died, these 11 individuals took the gospel and took the message of Christ so that you and I could sit in a church today and believe the exact same thing. You think about the power of knowing the right answer to this question. Listen, Jesus is the Son of God, the God or God of this or God 
the Son. And so to understand him and to give a clear implication of who he is this morning, I want to walk through a few key features of who this Jesus is. First, we start with his birth in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Listen, this is that she was going to be married to Joseph. Before this, they had not consummated the marriage. They had waited in, to do this after marriage. And so this was him saying he was, be, or she was betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, which is a, a, a biblical understanding of consummating a marriage, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Listen, this was clearly defined and given in the exact same way that Scripture would lay out that Jesus would fulfill this passage of Scripture that he was born of a virgin. Listen, I can't imagine being Joseph in this instance. So much so that the confusion with Joseph, God allowed, or an angel allowed him to be quieted until the birth. But understand, Jesus came into this world the exact same way that he promised that he would. Isaiah the prophet declares that it would take place this way. Everything in the Old Testament points towards this moment that Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, would be born this way. And listen, there's never been another birth like this. This Jesus, his birth, the second is his life. In all honesty, it takes four Gospels to capture what Jesus did in three and a half years. And imagine that amount of ministry, those things taking place, that he performed miracles, that he healed many people. And listen, the thing that I love the most is that he taught and trained 11 men how to truly live for God and fulfill their calling upon their life. Listen, the reality is this is his life. He pleased his father in every way. What were his claims? In John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Listen, the claim that he's telling them in this moment is that he is the Christ. That the only way that we can go to heaven, the only way that we can spend eternity with Christ is if we place our faith in him. He said, I am the only way. You can't redefine me or turn me into what you want or come to your own conclusion or your own opinions. This is the only way to heaven. Look, there is a world around you that's telling you, you can figure it out on your own. And I tell you, Scripture tells you the exact opposite. It is only through Christ. The next is his truth. In John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Understand that he was present, that his truth continues to prevail. And I love the understanding that we don't need to come up with our own version of truth. He reveals it to us in scripture. He's laid it out to us and he said, this is what is true. We get up to the point of his death in Mark chapter 15 and verse 39. 
I love the understanding that a centurion, not a Jewish man, not somebody that would have known this answer. Mark captures this, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, last breath, he said, the centurion, not a follower of Christ, not a disciple, not somebody that should know the answer to this question, he says, truly this man was the son of God, revealing to everybody around him, this Jesus is God. I'll always be fascinated with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where God reveals to him that this would be his death. And as he wrestles with that, just wanting three of his disciples to pray with him, they fall asleep. And in the loneliness of beginning to go to this cross, realizing the thing that he would take on would be our sins, realizing that he would be separated from God for, few, for moments, he would take on the sins of the world. His response is, Father, let this cup pass from me, but if it's your will, I will do it. His death one of the most gruesome in history is portrayed so that you and I would know that our sins are forgiven. And then ultimately his resurrection in Romans chapter 6, verse 8 and 11, Paul captures this understanding where he says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, but, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Look, understand that he, he defies death. He overcame this. He is raised from the dead. And he is back sitting at the right hand of the Father and he is petitioning on our behalf. I love the understanding that there's one mediator between God, is man, God and man and that is Christ. Listen, the understanding is that I don't need to go pray to somebody else. I can go directly to Christ. And that he is the only way. So let me bring this to an understanding. God the Son is equally God. And he fulfilled everything so that we would have a relationship with him. It's crazy because we see this from an earthly perspective. Man, I remember growing up, and I've told this story before. I remember getting to be about 13 years old. I looked at my dad and I thought, I think I can take the old man. I don't know why this happens from a son's perspective, but my brother, I mean, I was working out all the time. My brother, two years older than I am, must have been having the exact same thoughts because my dad told him to do something and he mouthed off. And I was like, oh, here we go. My brother stepped to my dad and my dad folded him up like a pretzel and put him on the ground. And I remember going, I'm gonna give him a year. I'm going to give him a little bit more time. And even to this day, I don't know that I would fight the old man. But for some reason, we think that 
this relationship kind of continues to grow. So listen, at this point in my understanding, I don't look for my father's approval. I don't look to him as I need him, but I look to him and I honor him. That's what's changed. So I think for us, we have to understand that God the Father, God the Son are equal, even though in our clear definition, the father-son relationship is this way. Listen, to complicate things a little bit even further, one of the most complicated relationships in my life is my relationship with my dad. And sometimes it's hard to understand. And then when I get frustrated for him doing something, I find myself saying or doing the same mannerisms. It's crazy how this relationship works. But we have to understand it from a biblical perspective. A father leads his son, a father invests in his son, a father disciplines his son, and an earthly father is not equal to his son. But Jesus is equal with God, and they fully submit to each other in everything. And one of the things that's tough for me to digest when it comes to the Trinity is if you put three really strong personalities in one room, they fight. They come to different conclusions and they're deeply passionate about things. But God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit worked in perfect harmony together in everything that they do. Understanding that Jesus is not a lesser than to God. He is equal with God. He is a part of the Godhead. Look, this is tough for us to understand and tough for us to explain. But I want to go back to that initial question. How do you see Jesus? How do you explain Jesus? Because there's a few implications of genuinely knowing Jesus. And the first is this. He molds our character One of the things that I love to see is a father and a son and the son being little. And even if the father has a little bit of a limp, the son has that same limp. It's crazy to see they walk together in unison. They almost mimic each other. The son is always looking to the father and beginning to mimic those things. He molds our character. When we know Jesus Christ and we begin to understand who he is fully, he molds our character. Catch that because I think the implication that we sometimes do is we go, Jesus, you created me this way. I'm just going to be this way. The reality is he doesn't leave us in our condition. He wants us to look more and more like him. He molds our character. We don't define him in our own terms. The next implication of knowing Jesus is this, that he defines our belief system. And have you ever said something far-fetched and somebody said, where did you hear that from? And you go, my dad, he knows everything. I always think of the water boy. The medulla oblongata. Mama said, mama said, mama said, well, what does mama have to say about this? Mama's wrong. No, you're wrong. Man, I don't know why I went there, but our belief system is defined by this. Look, so many times we look to the person that's taught us. Listen, 
My dad, as much as I love him and I honor him, sometimes he's wrong. As much as I try to be somebody that's truthful in every aspect, there are times when I am wrong. Our belief system shouldn't hinge upon our earthly father. Our belief system should depend on knowing Christ. He's the one that defines truth. Listen, one of the major problems in the Christian faith and in our world right now is that we're defining what's true for us. Man, I am so glad that I don't have to wake up every day and say, I'm going to define truth for Jeff Hubbard today. I look to Scripture, I read Scripture, and I know what truth is because Jesus tells me this. That's the definition of truth. It defines our belief system. It defines the things that we hold to. And listen, this is a good thing because if we did not have absolute truth, we would manipulate truth. Let me show you how this works. Go dogs. The dogs, the bulldogs are truth. Everybody else is not. Can I get an amen? Amen. Listen, some of you are mad. I can't help it we, we, that we win this much. Look, I can wake up the same way and say, truth for me is taking that person's life. Truth for me is doing horrible, shady things in business so that I can be fulfilled. Look, truth is not contingent upon what you want it to be. Jesus is truth, and he reveals it to us over and over and over. And listen, I don't know about you, but I love that it's the same truth for all of us. Third thing that, that, that is an implication of knowing Jesus is that it determines where we spend eternity. Listen, I, I want to be very real with you this morning. Something takes place after we die. And the definition and the understanding of knowing Jesus Christ is that he came to this earth to die on the cross for your sins and that if you will place your faith and trust in him, you will spend eternity with him in heaven. That's clear truth. The opposite is this. If you don't place your faith and trust in Christ, you will spend eternity apart from him in a place called hell. Look, I know that the world wants to do away with hell. And I know that the world thinks that God in his loving graciousness would not allow anybody to go to hell. The reality is that he is a just God and a righteous God and that we were born with a sin nature. The only way that he resolves that is by sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. One of those precious things happened between the services where a young lady who I was just walking up to hug says, I need to get saved. She says, I'm ready. We go through and we talk through what that looks like, what that means. And at the end of it, I ask her and I say, Riley, are you ready to put your faith and trust in Christ? with tears that rolled down her eyes and rolled down my eyes because I know that the Holy Spirit is drawing her to him. She does just that. 
Listen, because of that placing her faith and trust in Christ, Jesus promises eternity with him. He tells us in John 14, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And in that place, there are many rooms and many mansions, and it has plenty of room for all of you. But narrow is the gate that you have to place your faith and trust in him. So let me close with this. C.S. Lewis gives a really good quote in Mere Christianity on this understanding of the Son of God. And he says, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Let me say that one more time. The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Jesus is our example of what it means to be, the son of, to be a good son, to be the son of God. He came to this earth, he lived perfectly, and he fully submitted to God. So let me close with this. What is your view of God the Son? How do you describe Jesus? If you try to paint into your picture a, a, a better version of yourself, this is a limited view of Jesus. And this isn't even real Jesus. Look, I, I love that Peter's response when he says, who do other people say that I am? And I promise you, the people that were sitting around that table or sitting in that room were like, uh, Elijah or John the Baptist or you know whatever it was. And Peter, in his moment... Who do you say that I am? Peter jumps up out of his seat and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Because in his heart, he knew. I think one of the reasons that we're so afraid to explain the Trinity to other people is because we're not sure of our view of Christ. So I ask you, how do you view Jesus? It matters so much. Do you view him as the Christ, the one that is truth to you, the one that defines truth, that when you come to a place where Jesus says, live this way, and you're not, you change it for him. You don't redefine Jesus and say, listen, Jesus made me this way. He knew I was going to struggle with my sins. He knew that I was going to struggle in this area, and I'm just going to be me. I think of the person that said, you are the Christ. It's the same person that struggled with knowing whether or not he was Christ. Hey, aren't you the guy that was with Jesus? No, I don't even know him. He denied him three times after saying passionately, emphatically these words. It doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. It means that we know Jesus. How do you view him this morning? Do you view him as God the Son? Or just a mythical creature, a mythical figure that you can turn into your own belief system? Look, we as the church, we as Christians, we as the believers need to stop trying to define Jesus and look at what the truth of who he is and spend time getting to know him. If everybody would bow their heads and close their eyes just for a second. Maybe you've walked in here this morning with a flawed definition of Jesus. 
Maybe for a really long time, you've defined him into the, the, the better version of yourself that you want him to be. Listen, this morning, my challenge to you is first off this. Do you know Jesus? Have you placed your faith and trust in him? That's the starting point. But for those of you that already know who Jesus is, have you twisted him into a smaller version that you can accept? So I promise you, the words to the song that we're getting ready to sing and the words of every song that we've sang this morning have given you an expression of who this Jesus really is. And if your view is anything other than what Scripture defines, what Scripture lays out, you need to change your view of Jesus. So this morning, I beg you, I ask you, that when we sing the words to this next song, It wouldn't just be the beautiful voices or the beautiful instruments that are with it. That as you say those words, they speak truth and they are truly meant by you. Dear Father, I come to you this morning. Lord, understanding you as the Godhead, understanding you as part of the Trinity, Sometimes we we make this complex and Lord, when we look at this, God is described in 146 verses. You're described in 152 verses. Father, I'm thankful that you don't leave it for our own definition and our own understanding, but that you give us the truth of who scripture is. Lord, may we not look to define you ourselves. May we look to scripture. May we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and fully understand the life that you lived. Lord, understanding that as you interacted with the Samaritan woman, you did not cast her away. You drew her close. You dealt with her sin and then you lovingly forgave her. Father, whatever somebody's carrying this morning, I pray that it would not keep them away from knowing Lord, as believers, may we be bold. May we speak your name in every instance, in every way, in the way that we live our lives, the way that we conduct ourselves, the character that we portray. Lord, let it be shown that we have been in your presence, that we know you and that we truly live for you. Father, may you be glorified in everything that's done this morning. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray, amen. If you would stand with me, we're going to sing a verse of invitation. And if you've never been in church or this is something that's new to you, this is the time that we kind of hold sacred. So I'd ask you not to move around, not to leave. If the Lord spoke to you this morning, and spend some time at this altar knowing who Jesus is, maybe redefining that understanding in your hearts. And if you're here and you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, just as I was walking out this first service, just saying hello, and she says, I need to be saved. Listen, if that's you this morning, you're in the right place. I would ask that you come talk to me or one of my elders, and I see Kevin's in here. If my elders can come just sit up on the front row.
so that you would have somebody to talk to if you are in that position this morning. Don't leave here without knowing Christ this morning.